All right, well, it's good to see you guys. I'm excited to open up God's Word and talk Christmas with you guys. It is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? This is what you're hearing on the radio, at least. Uh, Christmas is established in our rhythm to stop and pause and reflect on the coming of Jesus. And our whole culture does it to some degree or another, which to me is so mind-blowing, isn't it? Uh, this past week, we went to see The Grinch, the new Grinch movie at the theater. You guys seen that one yet? It was good. It was good. There was a part in the movie which literally I was so pleasantly surprised. Erica and I looked at each other in the movie and kind of jo- dropped our jaw because in the movie, there's a part where the Grinch is going into, in downtown and into the town area like he does in all the Grinch movies, so I'm not spoiling anything. But they began to sing God Rest Thee Merry Gentlemen. Uh, there was a choir there that was singing this song. And what struck me was this. I mean, if you know the words, it's, God rest thee, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power while we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And then he kept singing it over and over. And I was like, I, I was shocked that this was happening in a, in a, in a movie like The Grinch. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty dope. I was, I was pretty amazed by that. Uh, so pleasantly surprised, but thanking God that even still there is something hardwired into our society that puts Jesus on people's radars. I'm hoping that this series and our time together as a Brook family over the next month will do the same thing. It's really easy to get stuck in the rhythms of Christmas life and season, from shopping to traffic to decorations, to just all the different parties. So much of it's good, but so much of it crowds out Jesus and squeezes him out. And what we want to do is put him back at the forefront of our lives. Uh, Christmas is about redemption, okay? Let's, let's remember what it's about. It's about God redeeming people like me and like you who could do nothing without him. This is at the heart of Christmas. And so we want to put that back in the forefront. And, you know, as a pastor, every year preaching on Christmas, at least four sermons, um, sometimes pastors, we talk amongst each other like, hey, we want to keep it fresh, but we're preaching a lot of the same verses every year. And so we think of different creative ways to bring the truth. And then on top of that all, we, all, we forget. Who could tell me what I preached on last year? <laughs> Jesus, right. Amen. All right, so we need the repetition, don't we? Sometimes I'm like, man, what, what was last? Did we? I don't remember. I can't remember last Sunday sometimes, man. So what we're going to see in today's message, as I unpack a passage literally I've never preached before or heard a sermon on as it relates to Christmas, we're going to see something that's extremely important for us to realize. We're going to see that God takes checkered pasts in order to bring a Christmas present. God can take a checkered past in order to bring a Christmas present. And what I love is the fact that God has done that in history, and he does that with us. I don't know the checkered past you've got, but you may not need to look much further than your grandparents or parents, your aunts or uncles, siblings, cousins, or maybe even your own life. And when we've got a checkered past, we need to be reminded that Jesus is about redemption, the Christmas present. 
And so as we take a look at this passage today, we are actually going to dive into the genealogy of Jesus, his family heritage. We're going to see some ugly in his family. We're going to see some failure in his family. But we're going to see that God is tenacious about fulfilling his promises. And he's about the same thing in your own personal life. Now, I don't know what kind of checkered past you bring to the table, but I do know the enemy has a way of hanging that thing over our heads like a light fixture. He has a way of reminding us of where we've been or come from or who has been before us in such a way that it crowds out what we believe God can do for us now. The past informs the present in ways it wasn't meant to do. There is a Christmas present that we're going to see that is greater than a checkered past. So would you join me in the book of Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books, one author, God himself, using over 40 different human authors to pen his pages. 39 books, what we call the Old Testament, that is the the books that are pointing to this reality that God's going to send his Savior, and then the 27 books of the New Testament when our Savior has come and has started his church. That first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Matthew was a former tax collector, one who was not too popular, if you would. He was not the kind of guy people wanted to know because tax collectors were there known to be cheaters who cheated people and leveraged their authority. But Jesus brought Matthew into confrontation of his grace Matthew repents of his sin and follows Jesus and now becomes one who shares the message of Jesus' life. Matthew has a particular burden to reach Jewish people in in the book of Matthew. We're going to see a lot of references to the Old Testament of the Bible because the Jewish people knew the Old Testament. We're going to see names of people that most of us who are non-Jewish, who are Gentiles, we didn't know about unless we grew up in the church or in a church setting. And we've heard names like Jacob or Esau or Joseph and David. But otherwise, apart from our biblical understanding, that's not part of our legacy, our heritage. So Matthew's writing to people who that is part of their story. And he writes what's called a genealogy in the first 17 verses of his chapter, of his opening book. Genealogies are known to be extremely boring. They're the kind of things we typically skip over when we read our Bibles. It says, so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who became the father of so-and-so, who became the father of so-and-so, and and you're like, I can't pronounce their names? I don't care who their dad was? Uh, It is unimportant? And then, you know, especially when there's times you come to spend time with the Lord, you're like, Lord, I want to meet you this morning. I want to get in your word. You open your Bibles. You come to a genealogy. You're like, God, you're not talking right now, okay? (laughs) So show me somewhere else where I hear you speaking because so-and-so, the father and -and so-and-so, I'm not hearing anything. But I want us to understand there actually is something remarkable and beautiful and important about genealogies, and in particular, the genealogy of Jesus. They are the pre-film version of a photo album. They tell you where you came from, and that's important for us. In our own day, Ancestry.com is killing it, aren't they? 23andMe is big time because we want to know where we came from because our heritage says something about who we are. It's fascinating. My wife, when she was in college, she did a study of her own family background and came to learn that through her father's side, his great-grandparents met on the Trail of Tears. Erica has Cherokee in her blood, and that is something that we've begun now as a family to really love to explore 
uh, what Cherokee Indians were about because we know that's part of our family heritage. And there's also some ugly there because the Trail of Tears was when they were relocated out of their lands. There, there's ugly in the story, but it doesn't define our lives. So we are all interested about our, our background, where we came from. Genealogies say that very thing for those who were in the, around before there were books and, or there, before there were a film and video and so forth and Facebook and all that. Jesus' genealogy is in particular extremely important. And today I want you all taking notes. I want you guys to pull out your Bibles, get that app out. I don't know what you use, but use it. Because we're going to see some important threads in Jesus' life. God always had a plan to save humanity. From the Garden of Eden, he tells Eve, one of your descendants, one of your offspring, will save all of humanity by crushing the head of the serpent. The genealogy of Jesus tells us how God brought that person about. God himself. So what we're going to see as I read the genealogy, and yes, I'm going to read it, we're going to see a steady, a steady dose of God's kindness and faithfulness, a whole lot of ugly, some sweet redemption, and ultimately a Savior who came from a checkered past in order to bring about the Christmas present. Let's take a look. If you want not mind, would you please stand with your, on your feet if you're able to as I read Genesis, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to highlight certain names as I read this. Some names I won't pronounce right, and you won't know better because you don't know how to pronounce them either. So I'm going to say it confidently like I know what I'm doing, and we're moving on, all right? You good with this? All right. The book, number one, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers who were the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah was the father of Perez. See, there's Latinos in the Bible. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I'm just kidding. He's not Latino. But. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Hear that name. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. You guys know that name. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Remember Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, one of the few good kings of Judah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, that young king. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, and hear this, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's important. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atzor, and Atzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called what? Christ. Verse 17. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word, no doubt. You may be seated. That's fun reading because as I hear names, I'm reminded of what I'm about to tell you about some of these folks. We're going to see that Jesus' family tree has some really good and some very ugly. We see that Matthew, though, has a, very, has a couple important points he's trying to get across by the way he chose these names. You see, he left out some family members that might have been in there in order to accomplish a purpose. And he adds names that we don't expect in genealogies, but we're indeed family, but we don't see them normally, namely the names of women. Interesting that there are 14 generations sandwiched uh, between these various events three times mentioned. Matthew had a purpose in stating 14 generations, even though there might have been 17, but he's highlighting these 14. There's a reason for that. Let's take a first look at what he does in verse 2 by saying Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. These three men are known as the patriarchs of Israel. There's something very important about all three of these men. It is that God had given a promise to them that goes like this. To Abraham, he says in Genesis 12, 3, write that down. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise God gives to Abraham, saying, in you, in your descendants, all the families of earth will be blessed. And from the Genesis 12 and on, we're wondering, God, how will you bless all the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants? Well, that promise was given to Abraham, but of course, as you know, Abraham died. And that promise then would be passed on to his son Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 4. And God tells Isaac, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise has been transferred from Abraham to Isaac. And then wouldn't you know it, upon Isaac's death, when his son Jacob comes up, God tells Jacob, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed in Genesis 28, verse 14. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are told, each of them, that through one of their descendants, God would bless all of humanity. How would God do that? Well, then we see Jacob has 12 sons who are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest of them, Benjamin. And then we go on up. And his favorite of children, who do you guys, who's that? Joseph was his favorite son. No, it's not okay to have favorites. Okay? But Jacob did it. Jacob's fourth son was named Judah, and you see his name there in verse 3, in verses 2 and 3. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. Judah was a scoundrel, to put it lightly. When he saw Joseph coming close, wearing his nice uh, colored robe, all the brothers were jealous of Joseph. Judah says this. He says, what profit is it if we kill Joseph? Let's sell him. So when the brothers were scheming like, you know, I'm done with Joseph. I'm done with father loving him more than he loves us. Let's kill him. Judah's like, look, guys, I got a better plan. We don't get no money by killing him. But if we sell him to Egyptian slave traders, traders, we can make a killing. Look at him. He's young. He's strong. And they do it on Judah's recognition. This is the Judah here mentioned. 
He treats women disgracefully. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But still, God is faithful to his promises even when his people are faithless. We learn something in his genealogy about God himself. God doesn't need us to accomplish his will. And we can choose to disobey God and not enjoy him. Judah was a scoundrel. Judah missed out on a lot of joy in life, but Judah was not about to thwart God's plan, the promise he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then to Judah went the promise. Noteworthy in his genealogy in verse uh, 6 is Jesse, the father of David, the king. You see, the promises of God continued on through the, 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 the people of Israel, and then it came to King David. And in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice that. God tells David, one of your descendants, I will give the kingdom, and his throne will last how long? Forever. See, this descendant would be the same one who fulfills the promise to Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through Judah, and now through David the king. King David would have a descendant who sits on the throne forever. That is no normal person. Last time I checked, we all die. However, David would have a descendant who reigns as a king forever. That's why we, as we read earlier for the Advent reading, on the throne of his father David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So here in the genealogy of Jesus, we see this word given to David. So whoever would become the deliverer and savior of the world would have to be someone whose bloodline can be traced back to Abraham through David. This is crucial. In addition to this, this is what I love. If you remember in verse 17, there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the deportation, and another 14 from the deportation to Jesus. Why 14 generations? What's the big deal with this number 14? And most biblical scholars agree to this very fascinating fact. Because in the Hebrew language, there are no vowels, just consonants. So David's name is simply DVD in Hebrew. D happens to be the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. V happens to be the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then we have D again, that's just number four. Add those together, what do you get? Fourteen. And so what most scholars understand is that Matthew hardwired into his genealogy here the fact that Jesus himself would be the king in the line of David through David to Abraham. Not so boring anymore, huh? Then we see a number of things about David, that he has a son named Solomon by the wife of Uriah, whose name is not mentioned. We'll talk about that in a moment. Furthermore, we see other kings like Hezekiah mentioned and Uzziah, as I mentioned as well. And in verse 10, you see a guy named Manasseh. When I was in Bible college, they called him Nasty Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. I mean, this dude was horrible. He was one, it says this in 2 Kings 21, verses 4 through 6 of Manasseh. He built altars in the house of the Lord to other gods. He went into God's temple and put an altar to another god. 
He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then this. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh, in 2 Kings 21, 16, shed very much innocent blood. He was a wicked king. This is part of Jesus' ancestry. A good king like Hezekiah, who was nearsighted, Uzziah, who grew proud at the end of his life, and a nasty Manasseh, who was wicked to the core. That's part of the checkered past here. And we see these kings going all the way to verse 11 to the deportation of Babylon. This is an important fact because this is how it happened with the kings of Israel. God gave a promise to set up this throne of David forever. But the problem was Solomon was the next king in line. And after Solomon, the kingdom became divided to the northern and the southern kingdoms. And two kings now began to reign over God's people. The northern kingdom of Israel was very wicked, and God brought the Assyrian Empire to conquer them in the year 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah was not as wicked, but they were not good. And God delayed his judgment until the deportation because he brings Babylon in the year 586 B.C. to come and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah through Nebuchadnezzar the king. And he takes them out of their land into a foreign land of Babylon. Now, what's so crucial here is because the people of God at this moment said, God, have you given up on us? We've rebelled, we followed our wicked kings, and now we're not even in the land you gave to Abraham. What of the promise to Isaac and Jacob and David? We are under a king who doesn't speak our language. We are in a land we do not know. And much of the prophets of the Old Testament are mourning. The book of Lamentations is a lament that Jeremiah is walking through Jerusalem that's now in ruins, and he's weeping, saying, God, what now? And it began to become a belief among the people of Israel and people of Judah and the southern kingdom who are now in Babylon. Maybe God's promise is over. We see in verse 12, after the deportation. Step to the side here. After the deportation, God begins to allow his people back into the land. You might remember the story of Nehemiah who builds the walls. The story of Ezra who brings God's people back into the land and teaches them the law of God. And while they're there, they began to just build their houses and start, start trying to get a new life again. Much of the same things we would try to do, right? If you're gone for 70 years, now you come back, you want to fix it up. But the problem was they began to fix their own houses while the house of God says laid in ruins. And God sends a prophet named Haggai telling them, what are you guys doing? Your houses are all done up, but God's temple is a mess. Your priorities are backwards. And he uses a man named Zerubbabel, see verse 13 in the genealogy of Jesus, Zerubbabel to help rebuild the temple. Now, you notice that name Zerubbabel. That's a fun name to say, isn't it? See the name? The first four letters, Z-E-R-U, Zeru, that means seed in Hebrew. He's the seed of where? Babel, which is Babylon. Zerubbabel was born in Babylon, and Zerubbabel was the one that God said, you know what? I'm not done with my people. Zerubbabel, I'm going to give you that signet ring, that, that identity piece, so that through you, the promise to David continues on. And now there is hope. 
again for God to fulfill his promises through his people. We see indeed a sketchy past. We see the patriarchs. We see wicked kings. But then we see this, as I mentioned earlier. We see five names mentioned that are not normal genealogies, and those are the names of women. Women's names don't show up in genealogies because it was understood that the heritage came through the father. Women were not viewed in the same kind of way in terms of positively as men were viewed. So even in this, the Bible is so subversive to the culture. There are five women mentioned. You see in verse 3, a woman by the name of Tamar. We see another woman named Rahab, and then Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, whose name is Bathsheba, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. I want to tell you stories about these women real quick. Tamar was an interesting woman. Her story is not as well known to us. It shows up in Genesis 38. You see, Tamar married one of Judah's sons. Remember Judah, the scoundrel I told you about, who treated women disgracefully? You see, his daughter-in-law married one of his sons, and his son died. And according to what their cultural trend was, the way, the way it was stated, his next-in-line son was responsible then to now be with this woman, Tamar, in order to have her have a child that kept the family name together. Well, this man goes with Tamar, and then God strikes him down as well because he's wicked like his older brother was wicked. And now Judah has a third son, but Judah's like, I'm not giving him to this girl. He's like, I'm, I'm afraid of this. And he was a bit young at the moment. And he tells Tamar, Tamar, wait in your father's house until my son is of age, and then I will give him to you. Now, for a woman in this culture, in Tamar's situation, who's a widow now, culturally, she's in a very uh, difficult place. Without a provider, without protection, without the care of, in the culture that was much, much needed. Tamar goes back to her father's house and waits patiently, and then she finds that the youngest son is of age, but guess what Judah doesn't do? Give him to her. And so she's now been waiting all these years for something Judah never intended to fulfill in his promise. Well, she heard one day that her father-in-law was coming to town, and she does something which to this day sounds so wild and so hard to understand, but it shows the brokenness of Jesus' ancestry she begins to veil her face and dress as a prostitute. She sits at the temple gate, and as Judah comes in, he sees her, she's pleading to his sight, and he wants her to provide for him sexual services. But he ain't got money. And so she tells him, he tells her, when I get back home, I will send you, he doesn't know it's Tamar, I will send you a young goat to pay for this. And she's like, how can I know that you will do this? She says, how about this? Give me your ring, which is your identity, your staff and your cord, and I will hold on to it. And then when, you're, uh, then when we're done, when you go back and bring your calf, we will trade the calf for these things. Judah's like, deal, let's do it. Judah lays with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, unknowingly. She gets pregnant. Judah goes back home, with, gets the calf, has one of his buddies send it back. It's a bad friend. And his friend goes into the town, and he's like, where's the woman at? And he begins to ask around, hey, where's the prostitute who used to stand here? And they're like, there's never a prostitute still here. And so he goes back to Judah. Judah's like, all right, she can keep those things. Let no one know about this. Well, three months pass, and Judah hears word that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And this is what Judah says 
to Tamar. He says, about three months later, in Genesis 38, verses 24 to 26, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word by her father, to her father-in-law. She said this, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son. That's part of Jesus' ancestry. But we see how from Tamar, even in her hurt, her father-in-law taking advantage of her, she has twin sons, one of whom is Perez, who's in the lineage of the Messiah. Another woman's mentioned there in verse 5, Rahab. Rahab is well documented in the Bible as one who was a prostitute as well. In the book of uh, Joshua chapter 2 verse 1, Joshua sends spies into this land of Jericho to spy it out to see how they might conquer it. They look for refuge nowhere else other than the home of Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab tells them what's going on in the city. God uses her. And then when the people of Israel go to Jericho and they march around those walls and they come crashing down, God spares Rahab. Rahab then marries a man named Salmon. Salmon has a son named Boaz. Boaz marries the next woman on this list. Her name is Ruth. Ruth was a widow herself. And she refused to go back to the place of her father and insisted on staying with her mother-in-law. And she tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, my people, my, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth is fervent in staying with Naomi because of her people and her God. Long story short, Ruth marries a man named Boaz, and God redeems the pain of her experience when her husband died. Boaz has a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of the King David through whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come. That's Tamar. That's Rahab. That's Ruth. And then David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his right-hand men, one of his bodyguards. And while his men were out at war, King David refused to go to war. He's standing on the rooftop of his castle and sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on top. He calls for her to come to himself, knowing then by that point that she was the wife of one of his soldiers. He lays with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David finds a scheming plan to get rid of Uriah and eventually has him killed. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Her son dies as well. And there is pain there. But God is a God who redeems even her pain, though she was taken advantage of by the most powerful man in the land. God gives her another son, and she names him Solomon. Four women whom you don't expect to find in a genealogy, let alone of the one of the great Savior of the world. Why are these women mentioned? And then we look at the fifth woman, Mary. 
the virgin of Nazareth in a poor town who was about to face ridicule in ways none of us could ever imagine. I shouldn't say none of us, many of us couldn't imagine. Mary would go through it. Why these five women in this genealogy? Well, what they tell us is this, that these women, though taken advantage of or though suffering much, were women who experienced God's redemption. And through their child will be the one who redeems not just them, but all of the world. It's remarkable what we see here in this genealogy. From the patriarchs to the kings to Zerubbabel, the seed of Babylon, to these five women. But then we see in verse 16 of Mary comes Jesus who was born, who is called the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah, Mashiach. Jesus would be the one who brings deliverance. Jesus is the offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent. Jesus was the one that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would have that all nations would be blessed by him. Have we been blessed by Jesus, the Christ? It is this Jesus who comes on the scene and Matthew is announcing his arrival of eternal proportions. Matthew wants us to understand that this Jesus is the one that comes in the lineage of Abraham. This Jesus becomes the Lion of Judah. This is the Jesus who sits on David's throne as the king above all kings. It is this Jesus who will fill the temple that was rebuilt with his own glory as God himself. It is this Jesus that all the nations would offer their treasures to him when the Magi visit him in chapter 1, chapter 2. It's this Jesus. I want to drive this home for us here. See, beyond the ugly of the story, we see God's promise refusing to back down when people messed up. When Judah was a scoundrel, when David abused his authority, when all the people of the land failed to worship God, God's promises stood like a lighthouse in a raging sea saying it will not bend or break. My promise will endure, though my people may fail. Christmas is about God saying, I will redeem no matter what you do. I will redeem no matter what happens here. That's what Christmas is about. Tamar was lied to and wrongly treated. Rahab was exploited for reasons unknown to us and some some known to us. Ruth was abandoned because of death, but not abandoned by God. Bathsheba, through the sin of the king, experienced untold heartache, but experienced redemption through her son Solomon. And Mary, who became with child, gave birth to Jesus. Family, God is tenacious in keeping his promise because he has redemption to accomplish. And I know, family, there are some of those among us who have experienced the heartache that Tamar has experienced, have been lied to. But one would come from Tamar, who is truth. Some of us experience the heartaches of Rahab, who've been exploited. But there is one who's come to give dignity back to you. There's one like Ruth who experienced great loss, but there's one who gives life who came from her. 
There are others of us here like Bathsheba who've been taken advantage of. But there's one who came from Bathsheba who loves rightly and purely and redemptively. There are some here who, like Mary, have experienced hardship. But there is one who would take our heartache and guilt on a cross through Mary. You see, the genealogy of Jesus tells us so much about his lineage and his mission. Some of you have some crazy, ugly, and heartbreak in your family tree. As I mentioned earlier, you may not need to look much further than your parents or grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, cousins, or your own life. Some of us in this room have experienced sexual abuse, deception, backsliding, and seeming exile from God. See, Jesus' genealogy tells us something extremely important that I want you to hear here. The actions of others don't define your identity. Yes, you've been affected by it, but no, it's not who you are. Your own actions, perhaps you have failure in your own life that hangs over your head, doesn't define you. Yet it affects you, but it's not who you are. Why? Because the final name on this list gets the final word in your life the Christ. He's the one who takes a checkered past to bring about a Christmas present. He's the one who takes the ugly from yesterday to give you the hope for today. So you don't get defined by your failures or the failures of others. Jesus has come to redeem. But in order to move on, you got to leave behind that legacy in order to leave behind a different legacy, if you know what I mean. You may know the story of Alfred Nobel. He was a man who in 1888 had the opportunity of reading his own obituary. How about that? You see, what happened was in that year, his brother Ludwig had died. And a French newspaper thought it was Alfred who had died. So they wrote up an obituary. What's Alfred Nobel known for inventing? Dynamite. He invented dynamite. I heard another answer. I'll get to that in a moment. And so here's what they said in the French newspaper. Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death, is dead. He is the man who grew rich, finding new ways to kill people. He reads his obituary and is mortified, and from that point on decides in his life to invest his riches to funding something altogether different to start a new legacy. And we know one of those things as the Nobel Peace Prize. You see, here's a man who had one legacy he had to leave behind in order to establish another legacy to leave behind. You see, we must understand that there is a God who takes a checkered past and brings a Christmas present. And that's a now thing. Jesus comes now, has come. God is with us now to bring forgiveness of your sins, to bring redemption of your pain, to bring healing to bring oneness and wholeness. On that cross, he took our sin so that in exchange, he can give us his righteousness. That is the gift. That is the present of Jesus at the present that deals with the past. I don't know your ancestry.com, your family tree, 
But today, family, is a gift to you. Jesus has come from a messed up family to bring redemption to those same people. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone, everyone to his own way. And the Lord, though, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that Paul can write in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the presence of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The last name on this list gets the na- last name in your life, gets the last word in your life. And we serve a God who gets it done. This thread from Genesis to Revelation finds its fulfillment and climax in Jesus the Christ. That is what Christmas is all about. Whatever you are here with today, whatever God is raising up in your heart, let God work on those hurts and heartaches to bring healing through Jesus. Don't, don't let where you've been or where the people behind you have gone determine where you're going to go. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into his family, and he's starting a new story. Yeah, there'll be bumps. Yeah, there'll be pain along the way. Yeah, you'll mess up. But yes, there is a Redeemer who will do his work and complete it as you trust him. This is the Jesus we serve who takes a checkered past to bring a Christmas present. I'm going to close in prayer here in a moment, but after I pray, I want you all, family, to, to respond, all right? God's moving your heart and you, just, you, you need someone to talk to or pray to. You know we do this every week, but I don't want this to become dull in our ears. Prayer is powerful because the God to whom we pray is powerful, okay? And so if there's some legacies you're carrying that you need God to break, let a brother or sister pray for you. If, if there are some things in your own life that others have done to you, there's hurt or heartache or choices you've made that you need God to bring healing, let a brother or sister intercede for you. And let Jesus heal your wounds and bring you forgiveness and eternal life as you turn to him and turn away from all those other things. So let me pray, and then we'll close in song and in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for all these seemingly random names that are packed with so much meaning. Father, I praise you, Lord. as you always planned to send your son Jesus, who is fully God, to become fully man, to enter into this creation that he himself created in order to redeem people who were so broken, Lord. And God, we know that we are named among them, Lord. We know we are among those who are, who are so broken, so flawed, so wounded. Some of us, God, are, are stuck in so much sin that we, we are so ashamed of. But, Lord, you've come to bring redemption and break these chains, Lord. And I pray you would do that today. 
God, I pray that we would look back on what you've done in our lives and glory in your name and, re- and just rejoice in what you've done, God. Father, we're reminded at Christmas that the manger stands in the shadow of the cross and the cross is conquered by the resurrection of Jesus. And through his resurrection, he raises us to new life. So God, let us proclaim that. Let us believe it. Let us trust you for it. Let us rejoice in it with all we've got, God. And let you receive all the glory, all the praise, all the recognition. Let your fame spread in our lives, in our homes, in our community. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand together, family. Let's brag in our God and sing of his praise here, fam. Prayer team, would you please come on forward, make yourself available.